Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, your host and author of The Alternate Universe, and I have another great author to interview today. But before we start, I just wanted to mention that the New Books Network, which sponsors this podcast and dozens more on all kinds of topics, has undergone a facelift over the past couple weeks. Our address is no longer newbooksinsciencefiction.com, although that will still work for a while. The easiest way to reach us is by going to newbooksnetwork.com and using the Arts and Letters drop-down menu and clicking on Science Fiction. And now on to today's interview. I'm continuing my conversations with this year's Philip K. Dick Award nominees. And it's only fitting that I started the podcast about our attempts to improve our technology at the New Books Network because P.J. Manny's book, Revolution, deals with new technologies, although she takes it into a realm I hope the New Books Network doesn't go, which is exploring the potentially calamitous side of new, supposedly improved technology. Uh, PJ Manny is on the line with me now. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. Well, your book plays with two main cutting-edge technologies, nanomaterials and I guess I would call it augmentation of human capabilities. Right. Brain-computer interfaces is how they're usually referred to. Brain-computer interfaces. Well, I I wanted to ask what drew you to these subjects for, for this, your first novel. I've always been in love with neuroscience, uh, what makes us human from a intellectual standpoint. And seeing some of these new technologies coming down the pike, it just seemed a perfect subject for me since it's something I'm so fascinated about. Well, and you find a way to connect these two in the book. I wonder, and maybe that's a way to kind of segue a little bit into what the book is about, the plot. Um, but you sort of start out with, a, with a, you know, a plot that seems to focus on nanomaterials, but then moves into this uh, computer-human interface. Right. Well, the issue with nanomaterials is that nanomaterials are just a tool. Um, when people talk about nanotechnology, they think of it, in the press is this discrete thing when in fact nanotechnology is just the making of smaller materials, the manipulation at the atomic level of material science, and it will be used in many things from the paint on your house to uh, the medicine put into your uh, system for cancer to sunscreen, to (laughs) all of these things. We're we're seeing how material changes and can be manipulated at this incredibly tiny level. And that's where it comes into human augmentation. Because, of course, if we're going to start taking technology and the technology that was once outside of ourselves, where we had the levers and pulleys and wheels, et cetera, that made us more than human, wheels made us go faster, levers, levers made us lift things and be stronger, etc. We're now miniaturizing technologies, putting them inside ourselves 
to become more than human. And is that in fact, I mean, as science fiction often does, it, it takes real technologies and sort of imagines them, pushes them forward into the future. How far along are we in that? I'm not really up to date on my application of nanotechnology to human augmentation. So, so is, that, is that going on now? Well, the human augmentation part is certainly the more controversial part because the way most scientific research goes is you first want to find a therapeutic use to take someone who is suffering from something and make them better. That's how you get funding. That's how you get people to buy into the technologies and get them rolling. The next step behind many medical technologies is, well, it has this wonderful use to make people better doing X, but I have an augmentation that I might like to use this for instead, and let me repurpose this drug, let's say, and use it for Y. A perfect example is Botox. Botox originally was used uh, for a very specific eye disorder, uh, what some people call walleye, um, where your pupils didn't line up and they would inject the Botox to paralyze this overly strong muscle to, to strengthen the weak muscles. Well, people saw how well you could inject into very specific muscles and just paralyze those very specific muscles and plastic surgeons thought, wow, what if I could do that for wrinkles? There's a perfect augmentation where, you know, you're making somebody, quote unquote, better, in this case, look younger. There's no medical reason for it, but they got this off-label off, um, usage of it that blew it into a billion-dollar industry. Right. Hollywood was transformed as a result. <laughs> exactly. You wouldn't have the Oscars like you do now. <laughs> exactly. No one's face can move. Uh, and, and are nanomaterials also being injected into people? I mean, I guess I, I have, I'm familiar with the ideas you say and like sunscreen and such, but. Right. Right now, nanomaterials are being experimented on in cancer research uh, using a, what they call a buckyball framework, uh, the Buckminster Fuller shape, if you will, um, where they, the, the, the medicine is so small, it can actually enter cells that it targets. So they're using these nano-sized delivery systems to enter cancerous cells to try to kill them from the inside. Well, do you want to give a little sense of what, uh, what the story is about, what revolution is about? I mean, you have a character, Peter, who, who has invented uh, some nanotechnology. At the outset, there's a, there's a terrorist attack. I mean, I don't want to, of course, ruin the plot, but uh, which, which sort of discredits in the public's mind, you know, the uses of nanotechnology because it's used in this terrorist attack. And so then he goes forth and does exactly what you just described, decides to adapt his nanotechnology to try to uh, treat Alzheimer's. And from there, I mean, there's a, there's quite a few twists. Uh, how, how do you how do you generally describe in brief the plot line? Well, I usually describe it as as the Count of Monte Cristo meets Frankenstein, except uh, the Doctor and the Monster are the same person. Mm, <laughs> great. Uh, it, it's a it's a political techno thriller which evolves into a science fiction thriller. The point of of what I'm trying to tell in my story with Peter Bernhardt is that the technologies he's developing are actually technologies that are in research and development at the moment. So he's dealing with, in, in order, uh, a nanoscale 
well, actually, a, a, a nanorobotic system that goes in to destroy uh, Alzheimer's within the brain. He then goes into a true brain-computer interface where he's um, creating a miniaturized system to take over to be a prosthetic, a prosthetic hippocampus, which is where we create our, take our short-term memories and turn them into long-term memories, as well as an additional cortex, the idea being that if Alzheimer's has turned your brain into Swiss cheese, which is exa- exactly what the brain does, lesions develop all through the brain, and your hippocampus and your, your cortex aren't working properly, you can have a prosthetic one. Now, this prosthetic hippocampus is being used right now in its first human trials. I've been following this research since they were still in Petri dishes uh, and then through um, early animal trials and now first human trials. Uh, It's the work of Ted Berger at University of Southern California. And it's some of the most exciting neuroscience technology I've seen because he doesn't, in a fascinating way that I also describe briefly in the book, He's not interested in the what is consciousness, what is the, how does the brain, uh, you know, work at this macro level. He wants to know what is input, what is output, and how do I get the input over the whole to the right outputs. And it's an extremely practical technology, which I adored. Uh, I, I love I love people who cut through the bullshit. <laughs> Pardon me, sorry, sorry, probably shouldn't say that. Um, no problem. Okay. Um, and, and he's developed a technology that will be of incredible use to people. So uh, all of the technologies that I describe are in various stages of research and development, which is why I actually wanted to write about them in the first place. I wanted people to understand what was coming, because that's actually my mission, uh, has always been, whether I write nonfiction or fiction, I want to explain to people what is coming so that we have discussions and choices and make the right decisions on how things are used. That's very interesting because your characters, you know, are gra- grapple with that. And I guess maybe they're stand-ins for you. I mean, Peter becomes very worried that the that his technology, which he's invented, you know, if it falls into the wrong hands, as it did at the outset with terrorists, could wreak havoc. And everyone thinks they know what's best. If they can control the technology, everything will be fine. But clearly, some people want to use it for what I think an ordinary layperson might say is... Uh, is not um, is not in the the public at large's interest. Well, and that that really is the point. Uh, everybody, regardless of your part in, uh, be it the political spectrum or your philosophical beliefs and how very influential technologies will be used, everybody believes that they know best how it should be used and. Th- they can be radically divergent opinions. Um, And that really is the point when you're dealing with disruptive and world-changing technologies that as many people understand that uh, what are the potentials for and against, no technology can be banned. That's one thing that that is a big mistake um, in the approaches that many countries take to technologies because one country can ban it and another country can say, and now we will go running with this and see where it goes, uh, depending on their ethical stance. 
Um, and you can see this in the difference of how uh, our country has grappled with, whether it was stem cells or whether it was um, cloning or whatever, how other countries then picked up the ball and started running with it. Or, or AI, the, the divergent opinions about AI are extraordinary. Um, and we'll see that accelerate as time goes on. When you say, I mean, are there are there national differences in in, in views of artificial intelligence, or are you just saying among among uh, scientists in general? I think there's also national views. I think uh, in the West we tend to have a more um, fearful approach to AI. Uh, in China, they don't they're not afraid of it at all, and they're going hell bent for uh, research in it. Um, that there's some very serious ethical considerations um, that need to be taken, but they would rather get to the technology first and then consider how they want to use it as opposed to here. You can hear the debates continually uh, between, you, you know, you've got people like uh, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking on one end, and you've got um, other researchers on the other ends talking about, you know, the differences in how they would approach AI, and they can be radically different. And how do you feel? I mean, the book, you know, obviously, as you say, is a, is a techno thriller, science fiction, political thriller. So it paints, you know, kind of a dark gloss on how something like this might unfold. I mean, Peter eventually, you know, reaches the conclusion that he has to kind of out technologize uh, his opponents and become more powerful than them by pursuing the technology as quickly as he can and as far as he can which is almost kind of like a Cold War, like one-upsmanship strategy, I guess, like I'm going to be more powerful than you or, and, and that's the only way that I can control this. But is that a sustainable model, do you think, in the real world? <laughs> no, that's drama. Right. Well, yeah, exactly, which I guess was my point. But what then I guess, you know, just to take the, you know, one, one fun thing with science fiction is, you know, well, so applying it to the real world, like what lessons can we extrapolate that, that we can apply in the, in, the, in, in the regular world? Like, what do you feel is the responsible, how, how can we pursue this, these kinds of technologies responsibly? Well, I think so far they are being pursued responsibly. And one of the things that I want to be really clear with is how much respect I have for the people who've developed the technologies that I'm describing uh, or, or philosophized or theorized about them first. Um, I have enormous respect for these people. And I think what they're doing is incredibly important um, because we do have systems in place where we do consider potential outcomes. Um, I'm writing fiction. Stuff has to happen. Conflict equals drama. <laughs> and, uh, what I've created is a character who has to take a cowboy approach to the research because he not only has to save himself, but he has to save everybody else too. Um, and that's a dramatic choice that I made and certainly not a policy choice I would ever make. Um, I'm just uh, having fun ultimately with the philosophical concepts behind it. I'm not writing philosophy, I'm writing a story. Uh, and this was a very effective way of getting those ideas out, uh, you know, in one hand, and I'm trying desperately not to give spoilers, but um, his opponents want to use this to control populations because they honestly believe it's the best thing for the country. 
So how do you justify that? It's a very real politic um, approach. You know, if Henry Kissinger was was uh, working in the 21st century, one might think he might actually seriously consider, hmm, how can I, you know, by any means necessary, get what I need for the national security of my country, what might he use to accomplish his goals in a 21st century context? And actually, Josiah is very much a real politic character trying to accomplish goals that he honestly believes are vital to the success of his nation. Right, exactly. I mean, you you present this very complicated. I guess it's like a. The, I think you even call it the the military. Uh, there was the military industrial co- uh, complex, but Eisenhower was uh, told to take out the word political. It's really a military political industrial. Right. It was, it was the military. Indu- yeah, the military industrial congressional complex, and um, and he took Congress out of it because in that famous speech where he actually describes it. Uh, we don't know why. It was in early drafts of the original speech. Uh, but somebody obviously got to him and say, said, uh, it would not be a good idea to implicate Congress in this. Well, the, and, But you, you supply the answer in your book, of course. You know the answer <laughs> to what happened. <laughs> well, I also say that, you know, he, you know, it's all part of the same group. <laughs> uh, so I'm having a little bit of fun with that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the real part of the story is that he did consider Congress part of this military industrial complex because they were allocating the funds. They were absolutely part of the, the, the process, but you know, that part got left out of his famous speech. And what do we do with uh, actors like North Korea or places that would be not necessarily bound by what we might consider a, a sort of a generally acceptable ethical approach to this kind of experimentation, these kinds of technologies, how would you suggest the world grapple with with that reality that there's always going to be probably people out there who pursue some nefarious end with with new technology? The only thing I can hope is that they've bankrupted themselves in their pursuit of uh, nuclear power um, because they don't have much money. And a lot of this stuff is very expensive to produce. I don't think they can they can produce all technologies uh, or earth changing technologies for all people. Uh, China certainly much more so, and because they're also thinking of how they can really monetize it. What are the businesses, the industries that they can create out of these new technologies? I, I think they are certainly more of an actor we would we should be considering than North Korea in reality. I mean, North Korea is a great big bad, but they don't have all of the the resources in the world to pursue everything. Right. And what do you then so what do you say about a place like China then that does have, you know, tremendous resources? I mean, assuming, you know, uh, not to assume that they're up to something nefarious, but if they wanted to be, said. So. Oh, I, you know, uh, I'm sure that they are pursuing certainly uh, nanomaterials and a whole host of things. Honestly, I couldn't say how far they've gotten in any of this kind of research. Almost all the research that I have, mostly because I can't actually read Chinese, um, I, all the research I've done is based on predominantly North American research. In, in, you know, everything from the, even the nanowire implants uh, that was originally uh, theorized by uh, a group out of NYU, Rodolfo Linas and his team, 
started working on that. Um, you know, so I, I couldn't tell you where China might be going with all of this. I can guarantee you they're researching it, but I have absolutely no idea in terms of nanomaterials like that. How, how would one persuade someone to behave responsibly with it? I mean, I guess everyone has their own definition, though. So it seems, I don't know what the word would be, imperialistic to assume that our way, you know, is a more ethical or, or better way. So... Well, there, there are definitely different kinds of ethics involved uh, from a cultural standpoint. Um, and their ethics tend to be both the, uh, instead of being about the safety of the individual, it's about the safety of the nation and the state. And they don't want to destroy themselves by any means. And they also don't want to put themselves in a position where they really have a one on, they, they really have a serious war with us or anybody else for that matter. Uh, they just want to keep on growing in, in manageable ways, whether it's manufacturing islands off the coast of, and that's what a, one of the things I'm playing with in the next book and the sequel, uh, their, their growth uh, and how they plan on um, growing through the manufacture of land actually in the Pacific, uh, which they're busy doing right now. <laughs> Exactly. We'll all need more land as with global warming. So Miami, <laughs> Miami should start building too, I think. Exactly. <laughs> well, you clearly have done a lot of research. I wonder if in your research, you were surprised by some of the things you found. You were, you were kind of blown away by uh, some ideas that you encountered. The funny part was I was less blown away by the scientific research, uh, although I have to say the original Freitas and Merkel research into nanomaterials and nanomedicine, where uh, I talk about their use of respirocytes, which is um, uh, something that's actually being developed, which uh, I'm, I'm thrilled by. But years ago, they were talking about uh, man-made red blood cells that one could flood a body with uh, that perhaps was drowning and could not get enough oxygen to their system. But with these artificial red blood cells circulating, you could flood the system with oxygen. Or microbivores, which would be nano-sized, I like to jokingly call them like, you know, little Pac-Man and Pac-Woman. They go in and I, they are programmed to identify invaders and they simply annihilate any kind of bacterial or viral invaders. These are all in your book. I mean, but but these don't really exist yet. Is that right? Well, well, the red blood cells, they're, they're absolutely trying to develop, although not at a nano level quite yet. Um, but there are researchers who saw the potential in that and are developing them at a more, a more um, macro molecular level. Um, and, but there are many people who are starting to go down these holes looking to figure out you know, how would this work? Because in theory, Freitas and Merkel's original theoretical work was extraordinary and so ahead of its time. We are now just getting to the point in material science where we can start seeing, well, okay, how can we really make this happen? And there are people who are starting to try to figure out how are we going to actually make this stuff happen? And that's incredibly exciting for me. That, that just watching that development as the years have gone on is kind of mind-blowing. Uh, in terms of the initial research, I actually had so much fun coming up with some of the connections, the weird connective stuff, because that's the other point of the book is as he augments his intelligence, he starts to see the big, not just the bigger pitch, picture, but how everything is connected. And it not even from a metaphysical level, really from a, wow, this little action over here in Des Moines is uh, affecting people in Delhi. And 
he's seeing things, he's noticing things. And all those little tiny stories that I kind of drop little droplets into from, uh, you know, who really Horatio Alger really was. Or right. or, or um, I, I found this story that I mentioned in the book about um, back when Cuba uh, needed oil and Venezuela needed doctors, they were trading doctors for oil. And they would lock up the Cuban doctors for their safety in Venezuela because the Venezuelan doctors were so threatened by them, there were contracts out of the Cuban doctors' lives. Wow. And, you know, so all, like, there's some little stories in there where people go, oh, she's just making that up. Yeah, no, she yeah. found this. And, you know, you're like, what? So <laughs> there, are the, there are a lot of these little stories. You know, when I originally envisioned the book um, and sold it to Amazon, we had come up with this idea of the future of the book. And unfortunately, the technology of ebook publishing has not caught up with my vision of what books can be in the future. But I really wanted you to be able to drill down in an ebook and have hyperlinks throughout where you could see that all of these wacky little stories I'm telling are actually true. I'm not making any of this stuff up. And that's kind of the fun part of the book is discovering, you know, they're really... The, the Russian oligarchs really were created by a bunch of Harvard economists and the IMF. Um, and, and to figure out, you know, how all this stuff is in fact connected. Um, that was the fun of, of what I wanted to originally create. I also wanted you to be able to listen to all of the music in the book. Originally, there were lyrics in the book, which um, 47 North's attorneys were very nervous to, to include. So they came out. Uh, but I wanted you to be able to play the music so you could actually experience his mental process. So he's a guy who processes and problem solves through music. My daughter does that. So I have personal experience watching someone do this. And I wanted people to really be able to have that sense of having a hacked and jacked brain. If you did have kind of a quirkily wired brain to begin with, and you had this ability to pull from endless amounts of data, what would that feel like? But unfortunately, uh, we're not at that point yet with all of um, uh, ebook technologies, so we couldn't do that yet. But I'm hoping once the trilogy is finished and ebooks finally catch up with my dream, <laughs> that we can actually eventually um, publish them all as the this kind of augmented reading experience. I've always thought, well, if movies have theme music, why doesn't why don't composers compose theme music for books? It could be copywritten just for the book, originally composed for the book. You know, there could be paintings and artwork and I mean people do illustrate books, but there could be a whole a, a generation of original but different a forms of media. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can be this multimedia event and I felt that because we live in our brains as multimedia existence, I wanted you to be able to get a sense beyond just the story that could be published on pa normal pages. I wanted you to get the sense if you were having an ebook experience of what it would le be like to be Peter Bernhardt because what fun that could be. You know, that is part of of the experience of the story is he's going through this radical psychological transformation because of the things he's doing to his own brain. And it changes him for both good and bad um, because he is a, an experimental uh, cohort of one <laughs> 
through. Yeah, he did not go before an institutional <laughs> review board to get an okay to get clearance for this. Right, and um, and he has to take the bad with the good because he's you know trying to save his own life and, and the lives of others. So I didn't want to have fun with that, and maybe someday I'll be able to. But uh, and and that's certainly the something that Amazon was very attracted to at the beginning. So I know that somewhere down the line. Let's see where those technologies go, and maybe we'll get a chance to do that. Well, and let's just talk briefly about uh, the Philip K. Dick Award. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And this is your first book, so, I mean, it must be an amazing feeling to get that kind of recognition. It's totally trippy. (laughs) It's especially because... I, I think I can be honest about this. I don't see myself as a literary stylist or as a great wordsmith. I see myself as kind of a a real Hollywood-influenced storyteller. I mean, that's my background. I come from Hollywood. Um, I, I was an executive. I was a TV writer. And I just really wanted to tell a fun story with all kinds of wacky stuff, that I could add into it. And that was very me. Um, And I took an established form, but I kind of ran with it. And I ended up melding genres and ignoring people's advice about, oh, it should be more just a techno thriller or no, it should be more just science fiction. And I, I, you know, it's a wacky book in that regard. It doesn't really fit neatly into any boxes and people who like boxes have a hard time with it. Um, So, you can only imagine how flabbergasted I was <laughs> because I honestly thought it was really just me and my editor who liked it. <laughs> well, I mean, I imagine, I, I, I think the, the judges of the Philip K. Dick Award probably were drawn to the fact that you broke boundaries. I mean, that's the kind of thing he did. And I mean, Philip K. Dick did. And so you, you broke with genres and you, you know. And I think they liked the drug trippiness towards the end. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of his, a lot of Philip K. Dick's books were heady, you know, things going on in the head, right? Drugs and consciousness changing. and Exactly. Uh, exactly. So I think I think I certainly fit into that that um, tradition of his. But uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm thrilled. And look, I love my co-writers. They're not only that my co-nominees, they're not only great writers, but they're really wonderful people. I knew Ramez Nam from uh, the Futurist World and, and the committees we were on and, and various nonprofits. But this is the first time I've gotten to meet uh, Adam and Doug and Marguerite and Brenda. And I cannot tell you how delightful it is to have that kind of camaraderie. Uh, again, coming out of Hollywood, and I never liked Hollywood for this. It's why I left Hollywood. Uh, but the backstabbing and the schadenfreude and the <laughs> Um, the uh, just disappointment in people and it is such the opposite in the science fiction community this has been such an incredible experience so far um, that we've come together we've we've created this contest um, we've created a website together we've done uh, you know a little podcast that Doug ran himself and that was hilarious trying to get all six of us on Skype which was constantly breaking down and and that was you know God bless him man um, yeah I'll put link I've put links to that on, on the past interviews so I'll do it I'll do it again 
funny because, you know, how, I couldn't hear 90% of it. So I was the one he mentions that people who couldn't hear anybody else talk. That was me. Um, I could only hear him and me. So everything else was just just empty, empty, empty air. <laughs> and uh, and then other people just dropped out. And were com- it was, uh, you know, God bless him, man. It's an, an actually an amazing thing he was able to put together and sounds great. Yeah, it does. It sounds great. It's very ironic. Here you are, you know, all experts in a, in a, in a way, a form of technology. Right. But I guess it's, it's imagined technology. So maybe... <laughs> When you apply it, it doesn't always work. Exactly. So that was really uh, a a delight to be able to have this experience with such great people. I cannot wait to get to NorwestCon and not only meet everybody else in the flesh, um, but be able to hang out with these people. It, It just, it's such a joy. And I have, I'm so thankful to be able to just have the experience of, of this kind of event. Wonderful. It just sounds great. It just sounds like a lot of fun. And so, uh, so I wish you the best of luck. I wish, I wish all of you an equal amount of luck uh, <coughs> to be, to be neutral. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, and thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me. I know we had a little of uh, some scheduling issues just because you, you'd, you'd lost your voice. So yes, yes. I'm so glad to get my voice back. So, uh, and hopefully I'll be able to keep it through with more Westcon. That will be fantastic. <laughs> Well, absolutely. Well, I've been speaking with PJ Manny, whose book Revolution has been nominated for this year's Philip K. Dick Award. You can listen to my interviews with Brenda Cooper and Douglas Lane, uh, which are already up on the New Books Network site. And I plan to speak in coming weeks with uh, Ramez Nam, Adam Rakunis, and Marguerite Reed. Those are all all the other Philip K. Dick Award nominees. Uh, and you can find even more interviews on the Science Fiction Channel at thenewbooksnetwork.com or also on iTunes or other podcasting services. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau and music by Michael Aaron. You can find us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi or on Facebook at NB Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and The Escape, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Thank you so much for listening.